You're listening to a podcast from WSUM. Hello, Madison, and welcome to You Seem Exceptional, an interview show that you are currently listening to on WSUM 91.7 FM, Madison. Each week on this show, we will have a guest on to get to know them and their story. I'm your host, Oliver Gearhars. This is my co-host, Jeb Blossom. And today, our guest is... Sean Steen. <laughs> All right, before we get started... The opinions expressed on this show do not reflect the views of WSUM, the University of Wisconsin-Madison, or its Board of Regents. Now I'm going to start this one off uh, the way that we always start things. Sean, where are you from? <laughs> um, originally, I'm from Hartford, Wisconsin. Hartford. Where's that? About 60 miles northeast of here. Wow. So one thing that you said, and uh, just for a little bit of background for our listeners, when I recorded the demo of this show for the station, I had Sean on as my guest then, uh, as... Just, yeah, she was my guest when I recorded my demo. That's that's the point. And uh, when we were doing that, she said that growing up in Wisconsin gave her a strong work ethic. And I want to know why you think that. I think that it's part of the legend of Wisconsin. I mean, you have, we're primarily agrarian, so there's a lot of farmers. And they're used to working from sunup to sundown. And when, when sundown happens, you do the things that you couldn't do when you were outside taking care of the farm. So the mending, the cooking, you know, all that stuff. And so I think that coming from a family, um, my family is Swiss. We are cheesemakers, farmers, factory workers. Um, I think that that was, an, you know, just from early on growing up, you get up, you, <laughs> you work, and you go to school if you're a kid, and you come home and you work. And, you know, any free time, there wasn't a lot, a ton of free time. I mean, helping around the house, I was helping with my grandparents a lot. Um, and any free time that I did have, you know, I'm Gen X, so it was pretty much feral. <laughs> so when I was little, that meant roaming around the far farm with my dog. Um, but I think that growing up, at least, you know, my experience and a lot of my friends in Wisconsin is you're put to work at a very young age. You're expected to contribute to the household work. Um, you learn to cook early, you learn to clean early, you learn to sew, mend things, fix things. Um, and if you don't know how to fix it, you figure it out. Hmm. All right. So speaking of work, mm -hmm. you work for a nonprofit called DayNet. Yep. Um, what does the company do? So our nonprofit has been around since 1996. We provide um, professional tech support to other nonprofits. So it can be a really expensive. Tech support can be super expensive, and a lot of nonprofits don't have a budget for it. And so what we do is, you know, we do that at cost. You know, any, any work that we do, we only charge people what it costs us. We don't make a profit off it. And so we give, we provide tech support to about a little over 100 nonprofits in Dane County. Wow. So you said that tech support goes for kind of a lot to the point where a lot of nonprofits can't organize it. Now, just for a point of reference, how much does it usually cost a company? I mean, I've seen contracts with IT, private IT companies that'll cost a nonprofit over $2,000 a month for tech support, you know, like 10 hours. And, and, I mean, it depends on what your needs are, how big your staff is. Um, but what we found with a lot of those managed um, contracts, you know, where it's like you pay $2,000 a month no matter what, and we're here if you need us, at the end of the year, you're definitely not getting your money's worth. And when you look at those contracts, a lot of the things that they are selling you, you're already going to get if you use Google Workspace or Microsoft 365, you know. So I think that, you know, what we do is we exist to offer people a realistic alternative um, where we only charge by the hour. 
you'll know exactly what you're charged beforehand. And because we're a nonprofit, we can offer discounts that private companies can't. So if you're going to buy new computers, we can usually get them, you know, for about 30%, 20-30% cheaper sometimes. Um, because we're a nonprofit, and we get a nonprofit discount, and so, and we also under, understand how budgeting works and funding works. So, if there's a nonprofit that needs new computers for their computer lab, or wants to have loaner laptops for their clients, um, you know, I can send I can send them information about grants where, and even help them apply for it, so their agency can get funding to make sure that happens. Oh yeah, that's I think that's one aspect of nonprofits I hadn't even really thought about is that I mean I guess every organization needs some form of tech support yeah and I mean that's pretty that's pretty crucial yeah and and it's I mean even with the digital equity work that we do in the community where we identify you know we will I'll fundraise so I can have free basic computer skill classes and free tech support clinics for people who are low income in the community because if they do have a device that's broken they can't afford to go fix it um, or if they need com- basic computer skills, you know, where are they going to learn? And so one of the things that we do is we also take donated laptops from the community and we wipe them according to the Department of Defense standards and refurbish <laughs> them and then give them to families, low-income families that don't have computers that are referred to us through our network of nonprofits. But, you know, when I'm looking for funding for even community digital equity work, a lot of funders will say, well, we only fund essential services, you know, like food, housing, you know, stuff like that. I'm like, good luck doing any of that without a computer, you know? Like, yeah. you absolutely need a computer to do that, to, to find housing, to find, you know, to apply for jobs. You absolutely need a computer. And they might think, oh, well, they could do it on their smartphone. Like, have you filled out an application on your oh, smartphone? Yeah, it's, you know, it's, I mean, <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> it is. And most websites, even if you have a, a website form, they're not mobile friendly. And so, yeah, I mean, tech support for nonprofits, I've worked for nonprofits for over 20 years, and we're always on a shoestring budget. We're always using donated used pens, and you know, you, you scrape by with what you can, and technology was always an afterthought. But now, in 2024, that no longer flies. And so we try to help people as much as possible. You know, where you got a nonprofit agency that's doing amazing work in the community to just say, how can we boost your impact by making technology easy for you, you know? So getting them donated computers or refurbishing their computers, um, sometimes it's as simple as walking into an office and just installing RAM on some of their computers. <laughs> <laughs> it makes a huge difference. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's an awesome job. So when we, uh, when we had our first sort of pre-interview, you mm-hmm. mentioned that you uh, started working there just as COVID was sort of hitting that hump. Yeah. So how did COVID sort of affect the long-term development of the company and your role at the company and your, and also at the same time, the digital equity project? Well, it's interesting that I was hired in June of 2020. And I think that's when a lot of people were realizing, oh, this is not just a passing, you know, the COVID thing wasn't just going to be suddenly over. And so when I started at DaneNet, um, I'm the only admin staff. Everybody else, they're technicians. They're in the field. I'll, I'll sometimes go weeks without seeing staff. I'm just in the office paying the bills and checking the mail. But what I was hearing from staff more and more um, as we were going out 2020, 
going through summer and fall of 2020 was realizing that, you know, they were setting up a lot of other nonprofits to work remotely. And so you had tons of caseworkers and social workers and nurses and direct service providers working with the most vulnerable population. Able, we're setting them up to work remotely, but suddenly realizing there was no one on the other side of that, that their clients could not meet with them remotely because their clients either didn't have computers or didn't know how to use Zoom but mainly didn't have computers. So we had, you know, suddenly facing this reality that we had thousands, if not tens of thousands of people in Dane County that were suddenly cut off from their support system because they were isolated and they didn't have computers. And so I had I had known when I was first hired at Dane that I had knew that there were a few businesses that would donate us computers to then refurbish and give to poor nonprofits. But I just started calling around and saying, how many computers can you give us? And I got a computer, I got a computer connection at a bank. They gave us like 300 computers because they were moving to remote staff. So they just got their staff laptops so they could work at home. And they had all these desktop computers, computers sitting in their bank offices. And so they just gave them to us. And we had a very kind local company, Cascade Asset Management, picked them up for us and they refurbished them for us. And then I recruited a volunteer and we just suited up and every weekend, and I did it in my spare time because it was something I believed in, we would deliver these computers to this list of people that we got from all these caseworkers and social workers and nurses. Um, And we would go into people's apartments and give them a computer, set it up for them, show them how to use Zoom. People acted like we were giving them puppies. We often, (laughs) people would cry. Um, People would offer us food. you know, just to be able to have during the pandemic. And, you know, at this point, we're going six months to a year of everything being closed. And suddenly they have a tether again to the outside world where they're able to not only stay in touch with their social workers and caseworkers and um, the nurses, um, public health nurses, educators, but also being able to get in touch with family that they wouldn't be able to see normally, especially elder family members who are isolated. And so it just changed everything. It really, you know, while the tech, technicians of Dane Net were working with nonprofits, doing this work in the community, you know, with my volunteer and then more volunteers to help deliver computers, uh, really changed the way that I looked at the work that we do and really drove home the equity part. Because seeing these families and then also realizing, and it's so silly, people don't think about this, but eventually we couldn't take desktop computers anymore. We could only take laptops. And a donor asked me, you know, well, why don't you take desktops? I have a ton at work I could donate to you. And I said, I, I'm so sorry, but you have no idea how many houses and apartments I went into. There's no furniture. These families are very poor. If they have any, if they have one table, that's where they eat and their kids do homework. Like I can't put a whole, you know, tower and keyboard and monitor on that table. Like these families don't, they have cardboard over the windows. They don't have curtains. Like they don't have desks. And also with desktops, you have to wire to ethernet. You wouldn't believe how many people's ethernet cords come through their closets in their bedrooms. And so I'm setting up computers on the floor in their bedrooms because it's the only place. So now we just take laptops, fortunately, and it's so much easier. Um, But yeah, it really realizing that, you know, when people have the bare necessities, a computer can make a huge difference. And then, of course, you know, we hear we distribute, you know, a couple hundred laptops a year now through our digital equity project. 
And we hear from people, you know, they're able to take online classes that were never able to take before. Especially because before COVID, if you wanted to sign up for online classes, people were like, good luck. No, you have to come to classes, you know, at the UW or Madison College. And suddenly COVID made them have to be able to offer classes online. So suddenly you have this whole population of low-income single mothers who can now take classes online. They don't have to chase childcare or worry about, you know, getting to and from classes if they don't have cars. So the Digital Equity Project, you know, and the digital equity work that we do is just, it has such a huge impact. Um, And obviously I'm very passionate about it. So I still have my work week and I still dedicate some of my time on weekends to making sure our our programs are running. Hmm. So also on the topic of the Digital Equity Project, uh, you run workshops through it, right? Yeah, sometimes, depending on funding, um, we will have educators or technicians in community centers or libraries or senior centers, and we give classes um, on basic computer use. A lot of it is internet safety, you know. Don't email that prince from Nigeria back. (laughs) That's not a real thing. Um, You know, Microsoft's never going to call you and say you have a virus and then need your credit card number. That's never a thing. So making sure, especially our elders, um, understand how to safely navigate the Internet and use email. And sometimes just learn how to work their smartphone. We do get people who come in and say, my son gave me this Chromebook and I don't know how to work it. And we show them how to work it and um, how to increase the contrast so they can see if they have vision you know, issues. Um, and then we do have like walk-in clinics where anybody can just walk in at Madison Public Library and ask for one-on-one help. Um, with our educator Tracy and sometimes it's navigating things like my chart um, sometimes we get people who want to sell their stuff on Etsy so we get little grandmas who want to sell, sell their their quilts on Etsy and we teach them how to set up an Etsy account and it's it's really interesting working in the community and sometimes it's just changing settings or people who want to get a job you know a remote job but they need excel skills and so tracy will walk them through the basic excel skills and help them with that but yeah it's it's pretty much specific to the venue so like we've taught classes at monona senior center and they have they have they want walk-in classes or they want classes on how do smart tvs work you know and so it really just depends on the venue and the funding um but we just try to get in the community as much as possible and bridge that divide between people who are not familiar with technology or, or who don't feel safe using it. And hopefully by the time they leave class or talking with one of our instructor instructors at a clinic, they feel more confident using technology and they're able to do the things that they want to do. All right. So uh, one thing I'm wondering, is there any particular um, case uh, that you've, I guess, is there any particular person that you've helped out through your work that you feel would be a good example of? It was it something that made you feel fulfilled, I guess. Something that you feel a great story. <laughs> yeah, there I mean there's a lot of them. There there's a lot of them. Um I think the one that the one that um the one that made me cry was <laughs> so we have you know, the, the direct service providers fill out an application online for their their clients to get a laptop. And sometimes we'll deliver the laptop, and sometimes the caseworkers will come into my office and get the laptop, and sometimes the clients themselves, their clients will pick up the laptops. And so <clears throat> I had, and this was during COVID when everything was still, you know, later on in COVID, but everything was pretty much shut down. 
and there was someone who a nurse referred to us um and she came and got her computer so we had talked on the phone and exchanged emails to pick a day and time that I would be in the office so she could pick up the laptop and <clears throat> when she knocked on my office door because um, we're not a public office we're just literally a place to get mail and where my desk is um, so she knocked on the door and I I opened the door and uh, it was this woman who probably was not much older than me but uh, clearly not well and my my first instinct was like oh we could have brought your computer to you you know when I had I had had her address from her application it was outside of Madison it wasn't in Madison and I was like oh you didn't need to come here I would have brought it to you and this woman she said oh no I had to come pick it up I this is my fourth bout of cancer and there's nothing more they can do for me and I just need to stay home and rest, but I also want to see my grandchildren, and I also want therapy, and yeah, this laptop's going to allow me to see my grandbabies and to have therapy in the comfort of my home as I prepare to leave, and I just want to give you a hug, and I just, oh. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, and I cried, and I just, I mean, we just held each other, and it was just such a, you know, it was just, it was, I just, it stayed with me for such a long time. And, but something so small, it's like, you know, I'm writing grants and it's like, how many people will get jobs from laptops you give them? Like, I don't know. You know, making these guesses of who's going to get jobs and who's going to help their kids with homework and who's going to become a contributing member of society. But the thing that hit me the worst was this woman who was on her way out, who literally just wanted, you know, she just wasn't going to be able to leave home be able to see her grandbabies on video chats and talk to her therapist and have a modicum of comfort. And that stuck with me very long. Um, and it's, it's one of the many reasons that I feel passionate about what I do, you know, cause there's always going to be the people who are like, they got a job, you know, they got their kids, you know, are doing so much better in school. They got better housing that lady will always stick with me. Um, and the fact that she made it into town one last time, even though she wasn't getting any more treatments, just to get her laptop and just to give me a hug. That is, that is a really powerful story. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. I, yeah. It, it's, still, it's still tough to talk about it <laughs> and not tear up. Um, it was just so human and so lovely. Um, yeah, it was life-changing. Wow. Okay, so the next question. <laughs> uh, <laughs> wow. Okay. okay. So, what other nonprofits have you worked for? Uh, you mentioned in our pre interview that you worked for uh, Real Change News, a mm -hmm. uh, homeless newspaper in Seattle, yep. and uh, the Literary Network in Madison. Literacy Network, yeah. Oh. Yeah, for 10 years. So, I, I had, gosh, so I worked. I've worked at Daynet since June 2020, and 10 years. You know, the 10 years prior to that, worked at Literacy Network. And then I'd worked at small businesses, but prior to moving to Madison, I'd worked at Real Change in Seattle. And it was just because I had, I've always loved volunteering in the community, and I was a book dealer in Seattle. And so what I was working at bookstores that my friends owned. What's a book dealer? So a book dealer, so back before Amazon killed the industry, um, <laughs> 
book dealers were ones who bought, sold, and appraised and dealt in used books. And so obviously, you know, books are only published for a short amount of time or a long amount of time if they're popular. Um, but people who were looking for books back then, if you were looking for your books from your favorite author, you would go into used bookstores. And so you would say, you know, I'm, I'm looking for, you know, anything you have with John Irving, you know, as American author. So you would have to haunt bookstores. This is pre, you know, pre-internet on everybody's phones and not everybody used the internet for book selling. Um, but you'd, yeah, you'd have to do legwork. You'd have to go into bookstores and say, I'm looking for this book. Um, or you'd say, oh, my wife's favorite book is West with the Night by Beryl Markham. I'm looking for a first edition for her. So book dealers, we all, book sellers, like bookstores all knew each other. And so y- either the customer would go around looking for this book or a book dealer, you know, or someone owned a bookshop would say, all right, I look for this book for you. And so I was either in bookshops buying and selling books from used books from people, or I was going to estate sales and garage sales and thrift stores and combing through their used book collection, rummage sales, because I knew back then, and this was, this was a skill that we used to have before the internet where I could look at a book and I knew whether it was a first edition or not. I would know the value. So I could walk into a bookstore in the 90s and find a book in the middle of many piles of books on the floor and know that it was worth around seven or $800. And so you had this network of book dealers back then um, that we would often work in bookstores. Um, so I worked in three different bookstores, owned two of them owned by friends and then another bookstore. And then I would do my own book dealing, which meant that I would prowl used book sales and thrift stores for books. And I would have private buyers. So I, there was a guy in Alaska who collected books on not making. So anytime I got a not making book, I would have a list like in my journal of the books that he had and the books that he was looking for. And so then I would be able to call him and be like, I got this, it's this edition, I think it's worth this much. And he'd be like, you got it. And so he'd send me a check and I would ship it to him. And so that's how, it actually, before Amazon was a was the beast that it is now, they literally just sold and bought used books. Amazon, can I say this on the radio, literally existed to destroy used bookstores in Seattle at the very start. Was it um, in Seattle? Yeah, oh it started goodness. in Seattle. Was it around? Did it start around the time you were there? Yes. Oh, yes. yeah. So Brutal. is that why you moved back from Seattle? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't yes. even know that's how Amazon started. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, they started just dealing in books, and they would just buy. They would go oh. into estate sales and 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 just buy everything, and then they would put them in a warehouse, and their workers were paid minimum wage to just sift through books, and sell them on the internet, and so. It changed the industry. Like, to have that industry change was just mind-blowing. Like, live while I was doing it um, was just phenomenal. But, you know, what was also interesting is at that same time, while I was, you know, working in bookstores and, and, and dealing with books, I was able to set my own schedule and have a lot of free time. And so I started volunteering at Real Change, which was the homeless newspaper but eventually I was just there so much that the executive director asked me if I just wanted to work there. Um, 
because I was there so much and I realized there's so much work that needs to be done here and you guys have no structured system for volunteers and I'm a Virgo, so I'll do it. <laughs> it's super <laughs> organized. And so I just helped them develop a volunteer program. And so they went from like having three volunteers to like 300 volunteers. And you know, I read a bunch of books and took some classes on you know, program development. And so right at that time where bookstores started closing and I wasn't, you know, people were going more and more online to buy their books, I just segued into nonprofit work and fell in love wow. with it. Wow. So I think a, a bit of context is yeah. needed for a lot of people because I, I mean, at least when you told me, I had never heard of a homeless newspaper. Mm. So yeah, I was about to ask, what does yeah. that entail? So, so Real Change was the, I think, was maybe is still the largest homeless newspaper in North America and the homeless the street newspaper I think it started in Scotland um but what you're doing is you're basically giving an income source to people who are homeless and so you have homeless people who are helping to produce a newspaper and so with real change what Tim the founder had done Tim Harris was he had come from a street newspaper in Boston, came out to Seattle and started the newspaper there. And we wanted a newspaper that was for and by homeless people. And so we produced this newspaper that would have, um, you know, all, all produced by homeless people, but like everything from recipes to poetry to um, local news reporting to uh, articles on Greek mythology because you have to understand that when you're talking about homeless people you're talking about human beings <laughs> who have had rich lives and just because they're homeless doesn't mean that they didn't have a whole entire life before that and so you have people who are homeless who may have been academics professors uh, geniuses professional chefs um, they may have worked for NASA you know the background of people who are homeless is actually surprisingly rich when you give them a chance to talk about themselves. But most often we see the same five homeless guys on the street and we think, oh, that's representative of everybody that's homeless. And it's absolutely not the case. And so Real Change just became this amazing powerhouse of a newspaper that did a ton of local reporting, uh, political reporting, um, where we would have homeless people who were also reporters or poets or artists um, or chefs who wrote recipes and we would have them, they would put all of it in the newspaper and we had an editor lay it out and then we would sell it on the streets and homeless people would sell on the streets. So they would buy um, from us for like, I don't know, like a quarter and sell them in the street for $2. And so all that profit that they made, then they could use at their discretion. We didn't really care. As long as you didn't come in to buy papers if you were drunk or high and you did not sell papers drunk or high. And everybody had badges with their picture on it so sellers would know that they were an official real change vendor. And you had people that were able to supplement their incomes with that if they were on Social Security or disability. Um, you had homeless people who lived out of their cars who were able to use that money to buy food with. Um, a lot of them had pets and they were able to buy pet food with that because that's not something you can find at um, food banks very often. So it was just a way for people to earn a living if they weren't otherwise em employable because they couldn't, you know, they didn't have a place to shower to go into work every day. They didn't have an address. Um, and for a lot of them, it just gave them a, a leg up instead of a handout. 
so they could just get enough income to where on the worst rainy cold days of Seattle, sometimes they would just pool the money they had to get a hotel room so they could all have somewhere dry and safe to stay and a shower. Um, And so I really, I mean, I loved that community. And it was just so interesting working with homeless people who had this vast landscape of knowledge and history behind them. Um, one of the, the men I worked with, Wes, was a, I think he was a math professor at MIT who had a nervous breakdown and went missing for decades. Um, but he has like a math theorem named after him, you know? But he would always write about uh, mythology because it was his favorite thing to write about. And so it was just so interesting to meet such a wide, and work with such a wide swath of homeless people. I, there was a woman who was a professional chef that if I brought her any soup, from anywhere, she would eat it and within a half hour be able to write down a recipe to the tea to make that soup homemade. It was like she was a taste savant. It was amazing. Wow. So you also worked for a literary network. Literacy network. I said network. the wrong thing. Okay, well, I, okay. Literacy. Liter- literacy. Literacy <laughs> network in Madison before you worked at Dana yeah. for about 10 years. Yeah. What do they do? So Literacy Network is a school for adults who are either learning English as a second language or they're native English speakers who, are, um, who aren't literate, so they read below a fifth grade level or sometimes an eighth grade level. Um, when I worked there, I'd say about 90% of the population Literacy Network served was refugees and immigrants learning English. Um, and then about 10% were basic English learners, so they were native English speakers that they just you know, for some reason, they were low literate. And so um, it was, I loved working there. It was such a great place to work. Like, first of all, the end of semester potlucks were amazing because you had people from like over 80 different countries proudly bringing the food of their countries. So at the end of every semester, every class was like an international buffet. I loved it. Um, And just the people that were there learning English were just so excited Um, and exciting to work with and helpful and and wonderful. Um, and then you had a lot of the basic English, the basic literacy learners who, for whatever reason, just never learned to read above, you know, a second grade level. And that was always an interesting demographic because, of course, we have assumptions about why people wouldn't be able to read. But, you know, even going back to what we first talked about, you know, in Wisconsin being a primarily agrarian culture we I mean, Wisconsin was formed by farmers and there were many generations before us that you're expected to work more than you were expected to go to school and so you know I definitely grew up with people that they could fix anything like if it had a motor they could fix it but they couldn't read a book but they could look at a schematics drawing and know how to take an engine apart and put it back together you know and so their contribution to their family wasn't being in school. And so what happens when you have this these generations of people who aren't literate, they're not going to raise their kids to be literate. Because, of course, the number one reason we're literate is really being read to as a child. You know, we're learning to learn. And if you don't have that uh, integral experience when you're young, it's harder to pick up in school. So you have these kids who act out in school, who don't do well in school, who sometimes just get expelled before anybody realizes that they never really learned how to read or learned how to learn. And so we we would catch them at Literacy Network when it suddenly came time in their life where they needed to learn how to read, whether it was to take a GED 
one of the older uh, men who came into our program was retired. He had built his own house. He had built the house his children lived in, but he suddenly had grandchildren who were begging him to read to them, and he had to come out to his family as someone who can read. And it was a huge humbling moment for him, but he got a tutor and we taught him to read. So he said he just wanted one thing before he died, and that was to be able to read to his grandkids. And so he just came and got a tutor and learned how to read. But yeah, it was, it was, God, I think they help a few thousand adults every year at Literacy Network um, learn, learn English or learn how to read. Mm. So in addition to your uh, roles at all of these companies, mm-hmm. You worked at a pool hall back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> this is the other. This is the other big topic. The extinct MMU pool hall. Yeah, yeah. My very one of my first jobs in college was working in the pool hall at the Memorial Union. Um, legendary. I, re- I I just I wish I have to, I I'll have to go through my old photos, but um, you know to to have that. To have the pool hall, I think we had 12 pool tables down in the basement of the Memorial Union on the west end of the building. Um, Just the activity down there for years. I think it worked down there for about six years. Um, Learning how to play pool down there. Learning how to play pool well. Learning how to shark pool down there. I don't think I paid for many drinks in college or just play for drinks and beat everyone. Um, But it was such a formative part of my college, you know, experience. And... Um, being a woman who shoots pool well isn't super popular out in the wild, but I got away with it at the Memorial Union. Um, but yeah, it. I wish there was a collection of photos of what the union used to look like back then, because it's so different than it is now. I'm glad the rat color is still the same. Um, but yeah, it was the golden years of the Memorial Union. So I think one of the things that you talked about a lot when we were talking about the union was that there are, are sort of colorful characters. Yeah. When you, when you work in a place like that. Well, yeah. I mean, you, I mean, especially you're kind of in this, this capsule of movement and activity where when you're working at the union, you know, you're going to be there, you know, a few times a week on somewhat same schedule and you work with the same people. But you have thousands of people, you know, students that come through and their parents that come through and alumni that come through. And so it's just kind of this amazing experience to be, and, and something I probably didn't experience at the time or acknowledge that I was experiencing at the time, but there's a certain amount of stillness when you're working at the Memorial Union or a place like that where there is so much life and activity and learning the characters um, like Sewer Bob, the guy, or Tunnel Bob, you call him, the man who lives in the, the tunnels under the UW, um, or Scanner Dan, or you know, any of the eccentrics that may not be students, but hang out there because that's where the cool things are happening. All right. So in terms of not students, we also talked about uh, teachers. Yes. Yes. On the weekends. (laughs) Yeah. So sometimes teachers will come in on the weekends um, to work. And because uh, they had their kids, they would drop them off at the pool hall and it was kind of an informal situation where we had a professor who would bring his son in to, to shoot pool while he was at his office at LNC. And I would end up watching his son. And his, I think it was like, it was like 10, 9 or 10 at the time. Um, 
but yeah, you'd, you'd have sometimes professors would come and drop off their kids to entertain themselves in the pool hall and I would get to know them. So it was, it was pretty interesting. Um, and one kid, because I was working down there so long, I actually got to know him when he became a teenager and then he would bring his teenage friends down and, and shoot pool down there as well. It was, it was, it was such an amazing place and I'm so glad I worked at the Memorial Union. I think that being able to work in a place like that exposes you to so many different kinds of people. And again, like students, non-students, faculty, staff, and then alumni. I remember one time my roommate at the time worked in the Ratskeller and she had to, um, there were two celebrities out on the Ratskeller. It was, I think it was Chris Farley and Tom Arnold and they got kicked out because they were being belligerent. <laughs> That's a crazy story. I don't know if we get many celebrities around there anymore. You know, I mean, you just never know. But yeah, back then, I mean, we also had, I was talking about this before, we had a lot of amazing bands come through and play on the terrace and in the Rat Skeller when I was in college, you know, Smashing Pumpkins, Indigo Girls, Living Color. Um, so many amazing bands before they really hit. And so, you know, and I think, and this was before the internet. And so people could, alumni could come to Madison and hang out in the terrace. And, you know, most people wouldn't really notice that they were there you know, and they would just be able to blend in unless they were being belligerent and then got kicked out, of course. <laughs> so have you been to the Union South pool hall? I have, like the new, the new one. I, I mean, Union South is so different than what it was in the 80s. Um, but yeah, it's it's small. They have, And they also have like a climbing gym in there, don't they? Like, yeah, there's a rock wall. They've, yeah. got, they've got like a bunch of different video game consoles, and I think they've got like six bowling lanes. Yeah, or I've been like bowling that. there years ago. Um, it's such a different place. Yeah, it, it used to be such an uncool place, <laughs> um, and now, yeah, I love. Actually, I think I'm. I go there most because of their movie theater. Oh yeah, yeah, the Union Theater. I the love Marquee, the movie theater in Union South, and they show great films too. Yeah. So, so how does that stack up against how it was in MEMU for you? Um, did they have lanes? No, they, I don't, gosh, I don't think Union South had, gosh, I'm trying to think what they did have when I was in college. Um, cafeteria, a couple plunk shows. No, I think even when we watched a documentary there, um, it was in like a classroom or meeting room. I mean, I think my main experience in college going to Union South was they always had a blood drive room there. And so I would always go and donate blood because it was something that I've always done I don't know I just something it's I grow it for free why not just donate it <laughs> um and so I'd go to Union South to, to donate blood and then every once in a while um to see shows because they would have punk concerts there in the 80s and early 90s randomly um but I don't really remember spending a lot of time there I mean the Memorial Union was always like the coolest place and, I mean, historically, when you even think about the context of student unions in the States, I think the Memorial Union was the second student union in the United States. I think the first was in Berkeley and then Memorial Union. And so because it was a YMCA prior to that, so it was like a men's club, so they'd have dances there in the Great Hall, um, there was already – it already had such a history of being a social hub on – campus and in Madison so segueing to being a student union I don't think was a huge leap um, for that building and so I think that it naturally you know the Ratskeller is just such a 
a cool place. It was also such an amazing place for open mic in the 80s, too, because open mic was just a train wreck. It was amazing. <laughs> um, you just get the most random people in there um, performing their hearts out. It was lovely. <laughs> we still get a little bit of that every now and then at the Memeo. They have some open mic nights. Yeah. I'm not sure what day it's on, but I've definitely walked past and heard something interesting. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's like finding a small rural town's bowling alley has karaoke. Always go. Because <laughs> the level of sketch is just so awesome. Um, and and it's just, I think that that's something that, you know, it definitely, you know, being a Gen Xer, having the last generation childhood, you know, in young adulthood without the internet, where we had to get our entertainment and in pool halls and in open mics and in bowling alleys. You know, it was obviously such a different experience. And so, you know, right now I could get on my smartphone and within minutes see people humiliating themselves. Back then you had to work for it, you know. <laughs> you had to go <laughs> hang out at the union and, and or a bowling alley and find an open mic or karaoke night. Um, and so it became a much more rare and precious thing to have these events and these concerts and these gathering places. And I think that that's something that... You know, it's it's just, it's different now, you know, but we also, um, you know, we also having access to that now online, I think it girds us for embarrassment a lot easier, you know, so obviously I think you guys are much more sturdy at your age <laughs> because of the things that you've been exposed to and then, of course, the things that you've also posted online of yourselves. So I think <laughs> there's a, there's a trade-off there um, with a value of social experience. But yeah, the, the Memorial Union in the 80s um, and early 90s was just something to behold. So we're nearing the end of our show, and normally I say, is there anything else you want to say next? <laughs> but I, I want to hone in on the thing you said about Amazon is so interesting. <laughs> Being there at like the, the zeitgeist of this oh my global giant forming. Yeah. Uh, when was the first, like, were you at like a garage sale and saw the Amazon guys come and take it all away from you? What? There were no you Amazon find out guys about back then. How'd you um, find out about it? I think that it was, you know, we had this, the, I think, American Booksellers Society. Um, it, was, it, it was called ABE. It was the one website, you know, one website having to do with used and, and book dealing that we could look up. So if we were really stuck about the value of a book um, and we couldn't muster it ourselves, we'd look on ABE. Or if we had trouble finding a book, we could look on ABE. And, <clears throat> yeah, I think it was just the fact that Amazon started popping up and we realized that there were people showing up at thrift stores and estate sales that were just buying everything. They weren't even looking at it. And these were these were people who obviously didn't have any respect for the craft either, you know. <laughs> so you know, just come in, sweep everything up. And then I think the first time I realized it was going to really impact um, the industry was people coming into the bookstore and saying, I can find this cheaper online, you know? And of course now oh. it's just like, how dare you? But back then you're <laughs> like, what? You know? Yeah, what does that even mean? Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, I'm on AOL chat and that's the extent of it. Um, <laughs> But it, 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 it was just such a huge change for people to come into a bookstore. And they would literally do that to, like, window shop, and then they would leave and buy the books online for cheaper. So, of course, bookstores started dropping like flies. I mean, we lost, like, two-thirds of our bookstores within a five-year span. If you ever want to talk about Amazon, I'll do a bunch of research, and I'll come back and we can talk about Amazon. It's... <laughs> 
it's it's so neat that you were there at like the place uh, doing the thing. Yeah, and not realizing back then what How a big huge thing. Yeah, I mean, and yeah, and then they, what do they do? They annihilate mom and pop shops and they annihilate video stores. You know, it's just like this, this, you know, this man with this idea that he can do what Seattle communities were doing with books. I mean, because the book selling community in Ma- in Seattle back then was the amazing. book selling community. I mean, yeah, it was just it was phenomenal, and there was nothing like it. And he said, "I can do this online." And I mean, you know, they didn't make a profit for years. Like his only goal was just becoming the place where everybody would go rather than the bookstores. And then the bookstores just dropped like flies. That is, that's great. I'm just, I imagined, I was, the fact that I asked when the first time you knew about this, like, what did I expect? Some, some bald man with an evil dream <laughs> came in. <and laughs> yeah. Like, so how much do you sell your books for? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was insidious. And of course, like most insidious things, it just, you know, it obviously just creeps up on you and, and it wasn't until years later where, you know, you look back and you're like, wow, that was just a tsunami of capitalism that destroyed <laughs> used book industry. Yeah, it was phenomenal. So now we actually are reaching near our <laughs> end. Is there anything you want to throw in before we wrap it up? Oh, gosh, no. Thank you so much for having me on and letting me yap on about my passions. <laughs> <laughs> oh, of course, I've enjoyed listening. <laughs> yeah, this... <laughs> between that touching story and learning about the that that Amazon that's, origins, that's, yeah, I don't know, <laughs> just <laughs> Amazon, the Amazon lore. Oh gosh. Well, it has been wonderful to have you, and uh, Madison. We will see you next week at 4 p.m. The same time that we always will see you next week at. 